uh, if you were to study the background and events of the Corinthian church, uh, you would conclude that the church had a lot of work to be done with respect to their sanctification. And from sexual promiscuity to getting drunk from the communion wine, uh, and you see that in 1 Corinthians 11.21, all the way to quarreling among themselves. Uh, these guys were far from ideal um, when we think about church, a, a loving and thriving church body. Yet with all those things we've seen throughout history that God has remained faithful to his church, bringing each of his children into more maturity and sanctification. Uh, he's given each believer the indwelling Holy Spirit, which is an assurance that they would grow and be sanctified. But as we zoom out a bit and consider the universal church as a whole, uh, we can still see lots of areas that God's people need help in. For example, uh, in an age of biblical illiteracy, we see that there's an ur urgent need for the best, most captivating, most anointed expository ministry. Also, in an age of greed and consumerism, uh, we need hearts that are moved towards integrity and, and generosity. Uh, at a time of much sexual promiscuity, we should seek purity, of course, without prudishness. And at a time where bad theology is the face of Christianity to many, uh, we need rich and wholesome theology that's taught clearly and faithfully. And most importantly, we see that so few people have a, a substantive understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And therefore, just another urgent need, right? We need bold, articulate evangelists. And I'm sure uh, if we put our mind to it, we can expand that list of things that the church needs, right? For example, many Christian marriages are in need of, of help. There are many singles in the body of Christ facing their own temptations, pastors who are facing serious depression, and not to mention those with severe health issues, members uh, in, our, in our church, wives spending every hour of their lives caring for their sick husbands or vice versa. We also have our financially poor brothers and sisters in Christ, and especially the widows and widowers. Now, perhaps you may be more heavenly-minded, which is a good thing, and your perspective may be geared towards the future, the future eschaton. Maybe you're more mission-minded, and this is a good thing, and you sense the urgent need for the church today to be more involved in, in the expansion of the gospel and evangelism especially knowing that there's still thousands of unreached people groups. Now, we should all agree that everything that I just listed are very important and in a lot of ways essential to a healthy church as it relates to its mission and its purpose. And I wouldn't want to dismiss that in any, in any way. But here's something that I think we need to understand. There is a sense in which all the things that I've listed here are symptomatic of a far more serious and urgent lack in the church. And the thing we most urgently need is a deeper knowledge of God. We need to know God better. And when I say knowing God, I don't merely mean the information about him that you can simply pick up from a systematic theology book. But I mean knowing God, of course, through scripture, but also by intimate communion with him. And this brings us to the point of this teaching series that we are about to embark on. Uh, a very foundational part of knowing God 
And one of the basic demonstrations that we do know God is this Christian practice of prayer. Spiritual, persistent, biblically-minded prayer. And uh, to quote Robert Murray McShane, when a man is alone on his knees before God, that he is and no more. In other words, you can fool yourself by assuming many things about your spiritual walk. But in the end of the day, your prayer life and who you are on your knees before God is the real you and nothing more. And I think in a lot of ways we've ignored this. We've learned how to be orthodox and learn how to be Christian in the public sphere. We've built ministries and institutions and strategies and programs. We've learned the art of Christian interaction with one another. And even when we do pray, there's often a felt difference between that clean-cut public prayer that is overly concerned about people's opinions and a prayer that is wholly conscious of the presence of God in whom we're praying to. What does this all mean? Well, this means that as it is for the individual, it is for the whole church. Our church's identity before God, think about Faith Baptist, okay? Our church here, our identity before God, is largely defined by our church's practice of prayer. In other words, if you want to know what God thinks about this church, you can get a clue by asking yourself, how are we doing in prayer, both corporately and individually? You may say, yes, but our sermons are very sound and biblical. (laughs) And I'd say, amen, they, they truly are. But we ought to ask, in what power are these sermons being delivered? Are they efficacious because they're well-thought-out sermons? Or is it because God the Spirit is using them to feed and purify the church? And if it is God who gives these sermons its efficacy, then we better be wholly dependent on God and his providence. And this means that even though sermon preparation involving exegetical work and serious Bible study is necessary, prayer is also, if not far more, necessary. And the same goes for all other parts of of the life of the body of Christ, right? Worship, evangelism, discipleship, and even your own personal sanctification. Prayer is a practice that demonstrates our dependency on God. And we must ask ourselves, are we truly dependent on God? The Christian is one who recognizes that they're not, in fact, in full control of everything. And as a Christian, I, I wonder about I wonder often about the psychology of the unbeliever, right? If you think about how the unbeliever lives on every day, wakes up, goes to work, does what what he or she does, how is it that the unbeliever lives with the assumptions that everything is either based on chance, luck, or worse, that our faith depends ultimately on our actions? Imagine just the weight of that, that all the consequences and all the things that happen to you, sometimes things that are uncontrollable, are, are just chance and luck. Or even the weight of feeling like, well, your fate is up to you and every single detail of your actions. Uh, the weight of that on the human mind, I think, is heavy. Now, in a lot of ways, our actions do determine our fate, but there are things that are completely out of our control in which we must trust in God. We were not created to be self-dependent. 
We were created to be dependent upon our creator and his provisions. And so to do anything else is psychologically damaging. For anyone who is a parent here, I'm one, think about the moments when you weren't looking that your child could have run into the street while the cars were passing. Think about the time when your child got hurt physically, but you knew that it could have been way worse if they would have just moved an inch to the left. Also consider how often we hear of news about murders and victims of horrific crimes. And often the news reports that we hear leaves us not knowing what to do. We feel scared that the world is getting worse. Yet we ought to ask ourselves, why was I not murdered? Why wasn't I in that mall or in that theater or in that school where the shooting happened? Or my kids, why weren't they in that school? Why didn't the shooting come to my school? Why didn't this happen to me? And as much as we can try to set up a safe environment, we are really at the mercy of God. And it's interesting how almost every phase of your life, when you're starting, you're going to school, or maybe you get married and you have children, then you get older, every single phase, it's, it's almost as if it's designed so that you can't have full control, that it requires you to be on your knees begging God to, to, to help you. So if you think you're in full control, you're fooling yourselves. Think about our finances and how God is providing for you and your family. Some months may be good financially and some months are not so good, but ultimately you are in God's, you are in the mercy of God's hand. Think about how God is providing financially for this very church. Again, the same applies. And think about all the ways that God is sustaining your health at this very moment, keeping you alive. If you had something to eat this morning, I didn't, and I feel it. <laughs> but if you had something to eat this morning or last night, you should try, try and trace every step on how that food got on your plate. If you had some bread, for example, you or your spouse may have purchased it, and therefore you obtained this bread by means of money in which your employer gave you for the work that you did at your job, but you should stop and consider the provision of God in giving you the job in the first place, right? In God's providence, that job, whatever it may be, was created out of a need aside from you even existing. And because of that need, the employer felt that this job needed workers, and in God's providence, you got hired, and you could have been that person whose application fell out of the folder that day by mistake, yet it wasn't. It was in the folder. And yet God has ordained for you to be picked when you got hired. And so, on the one hand, we see God's providence and his grace in setting that up. And on the other hand, you also have to think of the actual food that ended up on your plate and where it came from and who was behind making it and distributing it. From the farmer to the weather that allowed the food to grow right and to be collected and to the truck driver that picked it up and brought it to the store and purchased it, not to mention their lives and how it's connected in some way, um, and, and God is sovereign over all of that. And so by the time that food ends up on your plate, it should humble you. As you look at your plate, you should feel humbled. Like, how in the world did this get here, and I'm about to eat this? <laughs> I'm so blessed. It's a real miracle in how these things come together for your enjoyment, and more importantly, to keep you alive. We owe God praise for that. And that, that's P. 
period. You just, you just do. You owe God. And the point of this is to say that we often take many things for granted. We get up and we go to the store and we buy and we eat and the whole time we forget that God was behind the whole thing. And in many cases, people buy and eat and enjoy goods. And even as they pick up the food and even before they swallow it, in their arrogance, they say to themselves, I provided for me. The food didn't even go down. And they're telling themselves, I provided this for me. What arrogance, right? It's another way of saying there is no God. Or worse, I am God. And the reality is that we are utterly dependent on God, whether you reject him or not. And only a fool lives pretending that God isn't behind all of this. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And so God's common grace towards all men places a reasonable obligation on all people universally to pray to God and to do so out of thanksgiving. No one is exempt from this obligation to pray. No one. This is clear even in the Reformed Confessions, both the, uh, both the Second London and the Westminster, uh, in their chapter on religious worship. It says, prayer with thanksgiving, being one part of natural worship, is by God required of all men. And that, that doctrine is based on a few passages in Scripture, but one of them being Psalm 65.2, where it says, O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. With the emphasis, all flesh, all people. Now, considering the reality that we are all utterly dependent upon God, what does it mean for us as believers to neglect prayer? Uh, the very practice of coming before the Lord and relying upon him as needy children, I think is often the very practice that we struggle with the most, and, and I, I included. Why is that? Why is it that prayer is so easily neglected? What does it say about us? Have we become like the unbeliever who benefits from God's common grace, and that at the dinner table, even before our food is swallowed, we say in our arrogance, we provided for ourselves? And so as we neglect prayer, both individually and corporately, have we become practical atheists when we say we believe in God, but the way that we live proves otherwise, or at least that we, we don't believe that we are utterly dependent upon God? And so because of this, I want to present a theology of prayer as a, an introduction to this series, but also to help in recovering this important spiritual practice. Uh, the goal for this is for Scripture, of course, to set the foundation for our understanding of prayer. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. I'm going to set a theology of prayer based on the scriptures. And then right after that, I, I want to give you about three or four practical points on how to approach prayer in a very practical way. And then next week, uh, I trust that Desmond will continue on with more points. Uh, but for now, I'll give you the theology of prayer and then about three or four practical points. <clears throat> Uh, beginning with the theology of prayer. And if, you're, if you were to examine prayer throughout the whole Bible, right? You read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. You would see that prayer actually began at the time of the birth of Enosh, one of Adam and Eve's later kids. 
Some have argued that prayer began in the beginning of creation with Adam and Eve and God in the garden as they talked. Uh, But the text, when you read it, it doesn't present itself as prayer necessarily. Um, It's described almost using normal language, conversation, which, which says something, right? There was an unhindered communion with God. Uh, in the beginning when all things were created. And then when you think about Cain and Abel and their sacrifices, it, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, when you read it, it doesn't give a sign that these were prayers as they were sacrificing. It's only when we come to the end of Genesis 4 that we find anything that looks like prayer. And on your handouts, I gave you a list of these passages. So I'll read them because I don't have the PowerPoint up now, but I'll read them. And if you want to take some time to look at it at home and examine what I'm saying, uh, that might be a good thing. But you'll see that uh, Genesis 4, 26 is where you uh, see prayer or something that looks like prayer uh, finally come on the scene. Genesis four twenty six says, At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. There's a beginning there. People started to call upon him. Which might presuppose that there was once a... a, a uh, an unhindered uh, fellowship, and then because of sin, there was this need to, to call upon him uh, once, once uh, sin entered the world. And then we see more of this happen. Uh, Genesis 12, 7 through 8 says, Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord. And there it says, and called upon the name of the Lord. And also Genesis 12, 8 through 9, um, we see, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abraham journeyed on, still going toward the uh, Negev. Now, there's a lot to observe in the Old Testament about prayer, but to summarize it, I'd say that the foundation for what you see prayer to be in the Old Testament is this act of asking God to deliver, but to deliver on his covenantal promises. And as the story goes on specifically to rescue and give his life to his covenant people. So again, it's a call to God to deliver according to what he's promised. Now, in the major and the minor prophets, as you go on in the Old Testament, this privilege of calling on the name of Yahweh is taken away. It's withdrawn because of sin, but beyond this judgment lies this hope that a day will come when everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And with that in mind, we see that prayer is uh, predicated on God's covenantal uh, initiative. And this is to say that even though it's an obligation for all men to call on Yahweh, acceptable prayer is made possible only by the gospel. This means that all acceptable prayer, in a sense, is gospel prayer. And this is where you get this understanding from Scripture that prayers from unbelievers are hindered. Or this idea that... uh, if you're uh, in the New Testament where it speaks about the husband uh, who does not um, live with his wife in an understanding way, his prayers are hindered. 
But again, acceptable prayer is made possible only by the gospel. This means that all acceptable prayer, in a sense, is a gospel prayer. Even in the Old Testament. It is a calling on the name of Yahweh, who is the God of the covenant, the God of salvation. This is the consistent focus on prayer throughout the Old Testament. And then we have the Psalms, right? Which we often refer to or recognize it as the prayer book of Scripture. Reading the Psalter as a book of prayer, we see that prayer in the Psalms is a a bit more complex and can be more than merely just calling on Yahweh to come through on his promises. But it's definitely not less than that. And from this, we identify the different approaches to prayer, right? You see in the Psalms prayer of adoration, prayers of confession, uh, intercessory prayers, prayers of supplication, all without disconnecting it from its its essential purpose of calling on on God for his will to be done. So prayer is never disconnected from uh, a a strong, spirit-empowered desire for God to, to accomplish his will and accomplish his purposes. And then moving into the New Testament, we see that the calling on the name of Yahweh is further defined and explained by Jesus himself to where the apostles understood praying in the name of Jesus to be the new covenantal expression of calling on the name of Yahweh. In other words, if you're going to call upon God, it better be in the name of Jesus. And and I'm not talking about making sure that those words are uttered from your lips necessarily, but that, that, that ought to be how we approach God, right? And, and what, what does it say? It recognizes that you're a sinner and that apart from that mediator, Jesus Christ, you wouldn't, you, you wouldn't be able to communicate God in any uh, successful way. Uh, it's not that God can't hear. Uh, God is omnipresent and all-knowing. But because sin is there, your, your, your prayers are an abomination to God. Their prayers filled with all kinds of filth and, and sinful intentions behind it. Yet in Christ, we can come to the throne boldly, without fear, of course with reverence, but without that fear of condemnation. Because in Christ, we're counted as righteous. And uh, by the Spirit, the Spirit will, uh, in a sense, purify those prayers before God. You make them acceptable before God. And so if it wasn't for Christ, right, that union that we have with him, our prayers would be unacceptable. And so this is what I mean when I say that Jesus further explained prayer. Um, and it, it, took, uh, it took the d- development and the expansion of Revelation, right, from Old Testament to New, that progress, so that people would understand. Uh, because, of, because of man's arrogance and assuming that they were okay with God, we see that in the Gospels, um, the law shows us that we're sinful and that we can't come before the Lord in our condition. Yet Jesus made a way for that. And as I mentioned before, prayers through the Bible, regardless of its approaches, we're basically asking God to come through with what he has already promised. And this, this is why it shouldn't be foreign to us when we read in Scripture, when we read in Scripture that whatever is asked in Christ's name, we would receive it. You see that in John 14, 13, where it says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now, that's an abused passage, right? A lot of people abuse it and take it out of context. But when we understand uh, that prayer 
at least acceptable true prayer is always with the backdrop, it's always informed by a desire for God's will to be done, then it would make sense um, that whatever we ask in his name will be done. And we see that Jesus taught this in the Lord's Prayer as he prays for God's name to be hallowed and that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as a result, the apostolic prayers are shaped by the gospel, praying for what Christ had achieved, which God now gives up to us in the gospel, and focused on the promised progress of the gospel. And a good hint of gospel-centeredness in New Covenant prayer uh, I think is found in the Lord's Prayer itself as it prays that we'd be forgiven as we forgive others. So you see that there's been not necessarily a change in prayer, but a further explanation, a clarity, um, a revelation of our need to pray uh, in the name of Christ. And from this, we can define prayer like this. I'm going to simplify everything I said. I would, I, would, I would summarize prayer by saying that although there are many kinds of prayers, the heart of it all is that it is a calling out to God to fulfill what he's promised. And when we engage in prayer, we seek to align our wills to the will of God. When you're there, you're, you're quiet and you're before the Lord and you're praying. Uh, we, we pray with an expectancy that not only are we going to offer and give our petitions to God, but that even while we sit there and we concentrate and we ask the Spirit to guide us through this prayer, that God is transforming us as well. That as we set apart time to, to be with the Lord, and you may say, well, the Lord is everywhere. He's with me everywhere. Well, there's a difference. Setting apart time uh, is important. It's like saying, well, my wife's always with me, so I don't need to spend time with her. <laughs> She's always around. Yeah. But there's a difference uh, when you sit and commune with her, right? When you sit at that dinner table, you light some candles up, uh, and uh, you spend that quality time with your wife. Um, You're changed, she's changed. And and that's what it means to pray, to be in the presence of God, to isolate and separate that time uh, with God, knowing that God is everywhere, he's always present, he knows all things, yet you decisively come and you sit and you be still before the Lord, and you pray. And again, although there's many kinds of of prayers, we engage in prayer seeking to align our will to the will of God. We're denying ourselves and pursuing what pleases God. A good example is Philippians 4, 6, 7, where it says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known to God. And look what happens when you do that. It says here, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so here we see that in this kind of prayer, we're commanded to let our requests be made known to God as a way to exchange our anxieties for profound peace from God that would guard our hearts and our minds in Christ. And that alone, me personally, would make me want to pray more. Oh, how I, I, I long to lay down my anxieties to God and to, and, to, and to feel a sense of that peace that surpasses all understanding and knowing that God will protect my mind and my heart in Christ. 
And that's what we get from Philippians 4, 6-7. It's very profound. Now, I trust as we go on in this teaching series, uh, we'll, explore, we'll explore more angles on prayer uh, with different kind of prayers seen in the Bible. But for now, uh, I want to discuss the disciplines needed for prayer. Uh, and I want to give you at least three or four uh, practical points to help you guard from neglecting prayer. And I also trust that Desmond will, uh, will give you more points next week. So the first point, the first point in prayer is planning. Planning. Much prayer is not done because we do not plan to pray. We will never drift into a spiritual life, right? You don't just drift into good habits of prayer. Um, we won't grow in prayer unless we actually plan it, right? It means taking out a notebook, saying, at this hour, on these days, uh, setting this time apart. And part of this is that we have to fight this modern notion that spontaneity equals true sincerity. Our culture today values spontaneity and spontaneous actions. Some even assume that you're not being sincere if you have to think about it for a moment or plan it. And this is a problem that seeps into the church. Being disciplined in having a set time for daily prayer is often labeled as legalistic. I don't get it. Some Christians even prize themselves for the fact that they don't plan. They feel that it serves as a sign of sincerity. But all it really serves is as a sign of being sincerely undisciplined. And as a result, you have Christians repeatedly saying that they really need to work on praying more, but never really get around to it. So setting time for prayer ensures that these vague desires of prayer are concretized, right? It's set in regular practice. Uh, Some verses in Scripture seems to suggest that Paul, the Apostle Paul, set set aside times, specific times, for prayer. And I would say the same thing as Jesus as well. I'll give you some examples. Romans 1.10 says, this is Paul, saying, Always in my prayers, in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. You see that God has set times, had, um, excuse me, Paul has set times for prayer. Also in Ephesians 1.16, it says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. There's a decided time that Paul has to thank God and to remember you, or specifically speaking in this context, them, in his prayers. 1 Thessalonians 1-2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. So there's a corporate aspect there, but again, it's a set time of prayers uh, where Paul and the church would constantly remember others. And then our Lord, Jesus, we see in Luke 5-16, it says, but he, Jesus, would withdraw to desolate places and pray. So he, he actually pulled away into desolate places to focus on prayer. And uh, I know oftentimes uh, the church has 
emphasize the need to be together, and that's important. Uh, to, to not be isolated Christians, that's important. But I think there can be an overreaction to that, where you think that all aspects of the Christian life is constantly with people. And that's important. We never want to push that away. I think, I think our culture has wanted us to be isolated and individualistic. So community life is important. But I think that overreaction of emphasizing community life and not having a separate, set-apart, isolated time of prayer, um, I, I think is a, is, a, is a problem. I think we need to have time set apart, alone before God, to pray. And we see that Jesus modeled that for us, uh, again, in Luke uh, 5.16, where it says that he withdrew to desolate places to pray. And if we plan wisely, it would ensure that we devote ourselves to pray more often, even for brief periods. The worst option is to simply not pray, to just keep being a Christian and, and keep saying for the rest of your life, oh, I've got to work on prayer. That's the one thing I've got to work on. Uh, and again, that will end up being the controlling pattern of your life, unless you actually decide to say, from now on, every day at this hour, I will pray. Historically speaking, uh, Martin Luther, the German reformer, uh, he understood prayer to be more than just a spiritual discipline, but an actual obligation to the Christian. Luther says in his larger catechism on his uh, section on the Lord's Prayer, he says this, The first thing to know is that it is our duty to pray because of God's commandment. And you say, what commandment? What is he talking about? And he goes on to say, For that's what we heard in the second commandment. You shall not take the Lord your God in you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. We are required to call upon it every need or to pray. To call upon God's name is nothing other than to pray. Prayer is just as strictly and seriously commanded as all other commandments, right? To not have no other gods, to not kill, to not steal, and so on. Let no one think that it makes no difference whether he prays or not, end quote. And so Luther understood the lack of prayer as a violation of the second commandment, plain and simple. He also understood the danger of prayerless, uh, prayerlessness or a prayerless life and the need to take it seriously. Here's a quote from his letter uh, to his barber. In fact, I wanted to print it and give one to everyone. I'll try to do that during the series. It's so insightful and so, so encouraging and so um, it's very, very edifying. But here, here's a quote from that, that uh, letter to his barber. The, the letter to, to his barber is called A Simple Way to Pray. You can even look it up. This is what he says there. He says, it is a good thing to let prayer be the first business of the morning and the last at night. Guard yourselves carefully against those false, deluding ideas which tell you, oh, wait a little while, I'll pray in an hour, first I must attend this or that. Such thoughts get you away from prayer into other affairs which so hold your attention and involve you that nothing comes from prayer for that day, end quote. So if you don't take my words, definitely take Luther's. Uh, guarding set time of prayer is very, very important. Uh, we should set time for a prayer as we would a set time to shower or a set time to eat or a set time to go to sleep. Now, throughout history, many Christians have devoted themselves to praying the hours, right? Uh, those are the, the divine uh, 
the divine office or the liturgy of the hours. Many Puritans would have devoted morning and evening prayers. And we see in Scripture that David and Daniel devoted three times a day for prayer time. I think that's a great practice. I'll read it. Psalm fifty-five, seventeen. It says, Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. Then Daniel 6.10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber, open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So it wasn't a special occasion. This is what he's, he was always doing, as he had done previously. And so these set times of prayer would help to create a healthy habit of prayer in your life and ensure that you would be always walking in the way that is quorum Deo, right? Living before the face of God. When you have these set times, the pattern of your life is changed. You're, you're, you're always, because you have it set, you're always having to go before the Lord. And, and tell me not, that, that, that's going to change the way your attitude is throughout the day and, and even the way that you think. It, it, if we intend to change our habits, this would be a good place to start, uh, setting these times um, for, um, for prayer. The second point is to adopt practical ways to avoid or, or impede mental drift. Uh, Every Christian has experienced time when our private prayers begin to uh, drift into a web of other thoughts. Like, Father, thank you for this food. I got to go shopping for food today. I got to, and then your mind (laughs) just drifts away. (laughs) Oftentimes as we pray, we begin to daydream and let our minds go somewhere else. This is common. One useful way to avoid this is to vocalize your prayers. Say them out loud. This may mean that you should find an isolated location for regular prayer so you can express yourself. And even if you don't want to vocalize them too loud, let's say you're, you're in, a, in a setting where you can't do that, um, move your lips. Uh, and, the, and the energy devoted to expressing your thoughts and your words and your sentences will help order and discipline your mind to focus on that prayer. I think it's a good practice. Another thing you can do is pray over the scriptures. When you pray, have the Bible open and let that... Um, keep you on task, if you will. Maybe you can read a portion of Scripture and let that inform how you pray and, and what are the things you can pray for. Again, it's a way to overcome distraction and mental drift. Uh, it may be helpful to not use your Bible app, at least during that time. Uh, put your phone away and maybe use a physical Bible so that as you're reading the Bible or praying the Bible in your app, then you get a text message and you're distracted uh, but using a physical Bible in this time, it doesn't mean all the time, but, but um, in this isolated time that you set in your schedule, this might be a good time to use a physical Bible so that you have your, your attention focused on that prayer. Uh, some found that writing their prayers have helped them concentrate on what's being communicated in their prayers uh, and has also allowed them to meditate and reflect deeper when they write the prayer out. Uh, prayers are not less of a prayer just because they're written down. They can equally be sincere and and sometimes even more meaningful and more thoughtful. And so writing prayers also ensures us that we would have that set apart time because it requires you to sit down and to write or to be somewhere and and focus on the writing of it. And sometimes that would ensure that that time is isolated and separated for prayer. 
Again, these are just suggestions, but I think it's a helpful way to avoid mental drift. Uh, the third point is that in various periods of your life, you should develop, if possible, a, a prayer partner with, or, or a partnership with others, maybe more than one person. For, for married men and women, your spouse would be a great prayer partner. I think praying with your spouse is important, not only for the marriage, but for both you individually uh, and also praying with your family is important as it models to the family its dependency on God. I think husbands, as the spiritual head, need to model that and cultivate that in their household. I think your priorities are out of order if you can't lead your home before the throne of God. There's also great benefit in getting together with other brothers and sisters in, in Christ uh, to pray for each other and for other things. So being able to hear prayer modeled or to bless other people with your own prayers, I think it's, a, it's essential uh, in a healthy and growing church, whether in small groups of two or three people or, or bigger groups at the church. Uh, I think we should pursue that. Uh, we also have uh, our prayer meetings early Sunday morning at uh, 8.50 a.m. Uh, we do that right before we do uh, the Sunday school, so if you're interested. We see Acts 1.14, where it says, these, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So this is a church thing. People would come together and pray. Acts 2.42 says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And the fourth and final point uh, for today is to choose models. If you're learning how to pray, if you're trying to make it uh, second nature, a natural thing, choose models, men and women who are seasoned in the faith. Listen carefully on how they pray. Uh, it could be your pastor, it could be a mature brother or sister in Christ whose prayers bless and encourage you towards that communion with God. And this, of course, would not mean that we should copy everything we hear, right? Some people are very informal and chatty style in prayer that actually reflects more of their own personality. While on the other extreme, other prayers are this sort of solemn formality uh, using vocabulary and forms of English from like 350 years ago. And not to be judgmental on either one, I can't, uh, I can't judge their sincerity. But again, I, I only speak of those whom you can sense are being verbose for arrogant reasons. Um, and also formality can actually be a good thing and, and helpful in many cases. Um, but we should keep in mind that when we find good models, we should study their content and their urgency, not necessarily their idiom. And not every good model proves to have that good balance, um, avoiding those extremes that I just mentioned. But again, uh, content is key. A great prayer book uh, that I've enjoyed is The Valley of Vision. I think it's been a, a good tool to give me the words that often my soul desires to pray, but, but I can't seem to find the words. Uh, the Book of Psalms is even greater as it's the very inspired word of God and it gives us language, I think, for every emotion that exists. Uh, and it models perfectly how to communicate them in a prayer uh, before our Heavenly Father. And I trust that as we continue on with this series, you'll see 
more examples, uh, especially examples from the Apostle Paul. There's going to be a strong focus on, on uh, the Apostle Paul's prayer as we, as we go on in this, this teaching series. So stay tuned to that as we explore some of that. I want to conclude by saying that God's will is that his people know him more intimately. The goal of all creation is to behold him and to commune with him forever. Yet as we live in a fallen world, along with the distractions and the interruptions that sin brings to our sense of communion with God, we need to be intentional in seeking his face. We need to put these things to practice. And as we begin this new teaching series, I pray that we grow in our discipline of prayer and that our prayers become more mature and more informed by the word of God. Uh, So let's close by asking God to grant um, these petitions. Our Father, we ask that you would grant this for us, that we would take seriously our need to pray and to express dependency upon you. Teach us through your word how to approach you and how to pray effectively for our sake and for your glory. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.